actually I have 11 mantras for you. I'll give you the four now. Uh, in everything you do, understand the root cause of analysis. Root cause has uh, two meanings. One is called the proximate uh, cause of failure and second is the root cause. But what is proximate cause? Like in the case of uh, uh, Challenger, it was an O-ring problem. Columbia, it has a foam hitting. The second part uh, is the root cause. Root cause was a human error. Why? Because NASA knew about the problem. They didn't do anything. So human error mm -hmm. always uh, is important. This podcast is sponsored by Siemens Digital Industry Software. Learn more about their simulation and test solutions by clicking the links in the description. Build a better tomorrow faster with SimCenter. Welcome to a new episode of the Engineer Mind podcast. I'm your host, Yusuf, and on this podcast, I'm talking to researchers, scientists, and engineers and how their work is shaping the world around us. For this episode, I'm very excited to welcome Ravi Magasayaham to my show. Ravi currently serves as a foreign national tour guide and a global space ambassador for John F. Kennedy Space Center in Florida. In 2019, he was nominated by astronauts and held the position of the Solar System Ambassador for NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. In 2016, he officially retired from NASA after a stellar career covering over 28 plus years. He was the only person of Indian origin to work on both launch pads Complex 39A and 39B, from where NASA sent humans to land on the moon. Ravi started his NASA career as a vibroacoustics researcher in 1989, followed by Chief Launchpad Systems Engineer and Systems Safety Engineer on the Space Shuttle program. Later in his career, he held the highest safety and mission assurance position at NASA as the co-chair of Ground Review Safety Panel, GSRP, for all payloads going to the International Space Station, ISS. In this podcast, we talk about how Ravi decided to become an engineer in the first place, where his fascination for engineering comes from, we cover the topics of frequency, energy, and talk about vibroacoustics, we cover T-shaped and I-shaped personality types, Ravi covers skills engineers will need to have in the future, and we will talk about how Ravi solved his hardest task and so much more. If you would like to support the podcast, make sure you give this video a like and leave a comment down below to make sure the ominous algorithm is suggesting the video to more inquisitive scientists around the world. Subscribe if you haven't already. And now, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy my podcast with Ravi Magasayaham. Uh, very busy. <laughs> I've been uh, traveling all over the uh, you know places in India and other places, mm -hmm. and then I came back and uh, been hectic with um, writing my book. You know that's my main goal right now this year. Um, nice. I had to finish that for my daughter. I promised her for a long time. It's been ten years in the making, so <laughs> it's uh, slowly happening. Uh, so hopefully it should be done soon. You know that's my mm -hmm. plan. Really cool. Is the book more for professionals or like for students? Who no, no, it's just a, a very ordinary book. Uh, I didn't want to do it. I wanted even eighth graders in India and all over the world to read that, you know, as a part of my journey from India to NASA. And more importantly, I wanted to make sure that uh, they had hope that, you know, someday they can reach, uh, you know, the same uh, goals and ambitions, you know, I, I pursued, you know. Uh, so basically, it's a simple one. Next one I'm going to write, it will be more a little bit technical about problem solving in various sectors of the economy, like railroads, mining, helicopters, commercial airplanes, and NASA. So, uh, and space, obviously, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, that, I think that would be a little bit more uh, talking about what problems I faced in my life and how we solved it, you know, to, to uh, get the job done. Because a lot of times people give up on their jobs, and so, or in their on the in their life also they give up, and so that really you know bothered me quite a bit, and uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to make sure I write something initially just to impress upon them that NASA is possible. The second thing is uh, the second book would be really more for engineers, you know, uh, because uh, engineering is a dying art, and you know we got this forgetting curve every 30 years. So really, uh, I see a big uh, uh, problem problem with many, many areas of engineering, you know, so. Very interesting. So that we can actually leave that in the podcast, Ravi. And <laughs> with that, with that, we'll kick it off, Ravi. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way. Thanks for being on my show. Yeah, sure. I'm glad to. And uh, I hope people all over the world benefit from what I'm going to say and uh, hear me out, you know, not that I'm the greatest, but at least we can get the job done. <laughs>
Definitely. First of all, I appreciate you very much. Like when I share posts on LinkedIn and you're giving us your anecdotes in the comments, sometimes I spend minutes, if not hours reading your comments because they're so insightful. And I wish and hope that during the podcast, uh, you will um, let us know more about your anecdotes. First of all, Ravi, tell the world, tell people who listen to the podcast, who are you and what's your background? Uh, <laughs> I think uh, I've called myself an ordinary person in extraordinary space. And it's so great. Uh, I'm honored and privileged to be here with all of you. Um, and uh, I'm going to open up, uh, tell my stories, good, bad, and ugly. Um, yes, you know, I went as a small boy uh, growing up in India. Um, and uh, my whole world was the Indian subcontinent. And then uh, maybe 40 years later, I reached the top of my career in NASA, working 30 years for NASA. and. Uh, uh, doing amazing things. Uh, my whole uh, playground was uh, not just the Milky Way, but the entire solar system. Uh, I mean, so entire universe, I would say, because of launching the Hubble and many, many probes, uh, uh, the great observatories and stuff like that. So uh, today uh, I serve as NASA's global space ambassador. I'm also a VIP tour guide for NASA Kennedy Space Center. Um, and I'm an international public speaker. So I serve in many capacities. Yes, I'm retired from NASA, but they still keep me engaged uh, to do international activities to not only promote NASA, but promote space, uh, exploration of space, uh, mankind's um, um, goal to uh, explore the new frontier of space uh, and also talk about STEM. So there are many, many aspects of uh, my uh, lecture that I hope uh, you can learn from my mistakes and and grow. Definitely, Ravi. Before we jump into how a day of a NASA engineer looks like, can you give us a little bit of background? Why did you decide to become an engineer in the first place? Where did the motivation come from and the fascination? Well, uh, it's a good, good uh, story. I'll try to make it short. <laughs> uh, I think uh, my whole life was because of engineering. Uh, I started, uh, I grew I was born in Mumbai, but as soon as I was a few months old, my parents took me to Burma. And as a, growing up in Burma, uh, near the border with uh, Thailand, uh, I saw Caterpillar tractors and my dad was a civil engineer. So many uh, uh, construction equipment were hanging around uh, uh, my, my neighborhood. Uh, uh, I was exposed to them because my dad took me to work. But more importantly, I think, uh, I came back from Kabul uh, after Burma. My parents went to Kabul and worked for American embassy there, building uh, airports and other things. Uh, uh, I saw an Indian movie, Bollywood movie called Sangam, which is sort of a Pearl Harbor kind of uh, story. Um, two boys and a girl. In the end, you know, the boy um, marries the beautiful girl. And my 10-year-old brain said, if I become a pilot, I can marry a beautiful girl and go around the world. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes, I married a beautiful girl, went around the world, 100 countries, but uh, never became a pilot. So like Leonardo says, uh, you know, if the flight was not for me, uh, uh, flying was not for me, uh, let it be for others. So uh, that pursuit of flying uh, stuck in me and that meant, you know, uh, I had to become some kind of engineer because it's all about engineering when you uh, fly a plane. Um, yeah, yeah, really cool that, story. That led me to uh, uh, come to Mumbai and, uh, well, come back to Mumbai and study uh, high school and uh, you know college. But I failed in the exams in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And sort of uh, my parents were very devastated. I was devastated. And uh, then they moved me to Bangalore, which is now a hub of IT. That was 1970s, and that's when I got into engineering because my dad was an engineer. Uh, the school I joined in RV College of Engineering didn't even have aerospace engineering. But I said, if I start engineering, someday I may reach my goals of uh, being a good engineer for uh, for myself and make my uh, some somebody out of myself. And that led me to slowly to come to Germany, in fact, to work for Mercedes-Benz later on, after mm -hmm. I graduated in 75. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't know German, nor I did uh, know how to read German drawings. So that led me to uh, Chicago. That's where I joined IIT Chicago 
as an aerospace engineer and that was my start of my journey in america really to to uh, so i kept on pushing my dreams uh, i had this uh, what they call as pitbull tenacity i never wanted to give up uh, my dreams of uh, becoming an engineer especially an aerospace engineer something to do with a flight so like von braun said if i flight is not for me then let the flight be for others and that led me to boeing and nasa 40 years amazing career i never worked in india i worked anywhere in the world and here i come to america halfway around the world and i worked for two best aerospace companies in the world building helicopters building planes uh, uh, uh launching rockets to the entire solar system it's pretty cool and fascinating story ravi i'm super impressed where do you think the fascination of human beings in you yourself as another engineer where does the fascination of space come from what do you think that is i think uh, space was not my forte at all really uh, i was uh, as i said you know when i grew up in mumbai my parents said uh, you know we don't have money to f- let you become a pilot just like the movie stars uh, mm-hmm. uh, they said if you fly you die that's what my mom said my dad said no money <laughs> but uh, having as a one month old baby i would fly around the world you know i was uh, traveling to burma and kabul and later on Uh, after kabul in the 67 around 67 i was in abu dhabi dubai muscat so f- flying was nothing new to me i was flying in planes all the time even as a baby you know and as a kid growing up in india burma and afghanistan uh and middle east uh, so uh, looking at the clouds and flying like a f- free bird you know it it fascinated me you know and uh, uh reading books on leonardo da vinci and national geographic uh reading about uh you know the apollo programs and things like that you know really i was just reading them i, I had no fascination to space i was just only thinking about uh, below one carbon line <laughs> so what, what really changed me was that challenger accident i would say i was working in boeing as a uh, aerospace engineer having worked in railroads and mining and helicopters commercial airplanes and nasa in 10 years before i came to nasa my last previous job was boeing helicopters in philadelphia and uh, one day i was uh, working on the chinook helicopters making gears and bearings the v22 the tilt rotor i designed the whole gearbox and then suddenly in the morning there's a big explosion and until then really nasa was not really uh sort of my cup of tea i would say the only time uh, nasa came into my picture was two times in my life one was uh, john f k talked about uh, you know going to moon uh, the next time was uh, 1969 the neil armstrongs and buzz aldrin you know they came to visit mumbai the third time in 1976 right after i came to chicago uh, by the by i came as a tourist and i'm still here after 50 years <laughs> uh, that's a long story so I went to uh, Kennedy Space Center and just toured around. It didn't mean a thing, but the Challenger accident struck me. So you earlier you asked about engineering. So how did I enter engineering? Because of my uh, liking for uh, helicopters and planes. The next thing was engineering excellence. I wanted to become the best engineer uh, in whatever I did, and uh, that led me to uh, Boeing. And Boeing put me in railroads, mining, helicopters. and that challenger accident i said i have to be the best in engineering safety so each level as you see the pyramid was going up and up first it was about engineering second about engineering excellence then about engineering excellence i mean engineering safety so that led me to nasa really i said in my if i ever end up in nasa i don't i never want to uh uh um uh, really have any accidents you know and uh, even nasa first time when they asked me to join nasa i interviewed because my wife moved from philadelphia to florida or orlando and nasa said have you launched a rocket i said no have you seen a rocket no <laughs> i said only rocket i knew was those tiny firecrackers fireworks i was launching in mumbai when there was this mm-hmm. festival of lights we call it diwali mm-hmm. and they were saying how the heck i'm supposed to hire you when you don't have clue about rockets but what i did was preparation you know uh, it's always about preparation you know uh, luck favors a prepared mind as they say so i had read a book about uh, a shuttle so i knew all the acronyms in nasa i knew everything about the rocket uh, uh, but i hadn't seen one but also what i did was i i told the manager i said look 
you know do you have a car it vibrates do you have a plane you sit in a plane it vibrates do you have a helicopter you sit in that vibrates so the rockets also vibrate so vibration is a common denominator for all these structures and i'm a structural engineer so if you have a major problem on uh, launch pad because of high acoustics 190 decibels so let me fix it i know how to fix it because vibration doesn't care whether you are a rocket or a a helicopter or a plane or a car or, or even your human body vibrates every single part of your body has a natural uh, uh, tendency or frequency of uh, vibration so with that i got my job <laughs> very interesting i think tesla even said it right ravi that uh, we should think in terms of vibration and frequencies like nikola tesla there's a famous quote from him saying if we think about the world in, uh, in terms of energy and frequency then we understand the world a little bit more so that's really, really interesting. You're very true. Uh, uh, for me, frequency, yes, matters. Resonance, we call resonance, you know, what happens in resonance, right? So basically, even when a boy meets a girl, <laughs> your heart starts fluttering and that's resonance for you. <laughs> so I use that analogy to, to really say that, you know, everything in your body, you think your eyes don't vibrate, they do vibrate. They have a natural tendency to vibrate, but they don't have that external input, like the space shuttle hitting acoustics or sound hitting. So unfortunately today, uh, uh, Joseph, many, many, many people in this world uh, know about vibration, but many few, pe very few people uh, study vibroacoustics. And I'm the one mm -hmm. of the last Mohicans, I think, in NASA who understood uh, 100 rockets I launched, uh, highest amount of uh, decibels we launched, uh, had 190 decibels. Being born in Mumbai in the 1950s, just when Bombay talkies started, meaning there were silent movies before that, and Bombay talkies means, you know, talking uh, um, sound uh, sound pictures. So mm -hmm. going from a zero dB all the way to 190 dB, that must have been an amazing journey, just in, you know, when you start connecting things around the globe, you know. When you talk about vibroacoustic, what approaches did you take to actually investigate these scenarios? Did you use any special kind of NASA software that would invest could investigate this phenomenon? How did you do that? Well, very good point. Uh, when we started working on vibroacoustics, uh, really, as the rockets increased in thrust, uh, uh, as you know, uh, uh, acoustic energy is directly proportional to thrust and velocity. Uh, uh, really, NASA didn't understand uh, the the philosophy of vibroacoustics until you brought solids into the picture. Now you know why most people in the world use liquid rocket engines. They are more benign and stuff like that. Yes, they do produce a lot of dB, uh, but but they don't have that, uh, what they call as ignition over pressure thrust. Means at T0, when you give the signal to the space shuttle, well, you would have given it uh, the signal even earlier, like T minus six and a half, I mean, T minus 13 seconds, the pyrotechnic and the computer takes over and at T minus six and a half seconds, the main engines come, we gimbal them, make sure 100% thrust, and then we go to solids. And these solids have to be, you know, one millionth of a second, four, eight bolts have to uh, break and the nuts have to break and the bolts have to come down. And even if you make a tiny mistake, you're going to be a disaster. So the solids, what they do is when, when the exhaust comes out of the uh, uh, nozzle exit plane on the rocket, uh, it mixes with the ambient air, and there's tremendous amount of, uh, 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 you know, uh, computational uh, fluid dynamics wouldn't even be doing justice to understand what kind of uh, power and the velocities. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Mach 3 exhausts and uh, 3,000 degrees temperature, and, you know, uh, you know it's, it's amazing amount of energy and reflections on top of it. All these things, and then uh, uh, it, it, the, it swirls around and tries to go anywhere. Uh, we do put a lot of water on the launch pad to mitigate acoustics, but still, once the rocket lifts off for the launch pad, even if it goes about one foot above the launch pad, sound doesn't care. It goes everywhere. It goes into your payload. It goes into your um, crew compartment. It affects the rocket. It affects the launch pad structures. It even affects the birds and the bees around the Kennedy Space Center and the alligators. So the, my first job was to understand uh, to measure this sound energy because you couldn't study or uh, uh, mitigate vibrations without an, uh, computing vibrations. But to compute vibrations, you know the, the acoustic load. And nobody had studied that acoustic load for rockets like uh, the space shuttle. And that's mm -hmm. where we came in. There is no models left, you know. The first time you launch a rocket, that's your proof in the pudding, whether it goes or it doesn't go. 
and uh, we have launched, stopped the rocket one time at T minus one and a half seconds. Can you imagine if uh, something went wrong at T minus one and a half seconds, you'd have a big disaster. So uh, my first job was to understand the structures on the launch pad. They don't fly off and hit the rocket. Secondly, I had to worry about the payloads. Uh, when you have Hubble uh, sitting in the payload compartment or uh, alpha magnetic spectrometer or something like that, that's a bad day for you if you blow up that uh, payload. It doesn't matter how many launches you do in space at $500 million per shuttle launch. If the payload goes to space and doesn't work, mission is not accomplished. Mission is dead on arrival. So that is what my job was. And obviously, we, we don't want more than 130 decibels hitting the uh, uh, um, people, all, I mean, in the astronauts. So my job was all this. And, the, and uh, uh, we kept the people around Kennedy Space Center three miles away. That's where we would get about 130 decibels for a short duration, which is the jet engine DB. So, but the problem was there was no tools. So we had to develop the tools to go from acoustic load uh, and put it in a vibration uh, equation and then go from there to uh, predict vibrations. Later on, we had finite mm -hmm. elements. We could do PSDs and FFTs came around. Uh, when we started way back in the uh, 60s, there was no FFTs and stuff like that. And we couldn't have the, all the tools with MATLAB and many, many things. Now we have finite element analysis, which I'm expert in basically. Uh, I, we could do that now, but not those days, you know. And uh, later on, even Bendat and Pearsall, you know, who wrote the book on vibrations, they studied a lot of stuff from Kennedy Space Center. Unfortunately, my friend uh, who was a, uh, a guy from Yugoslavia worked for Boeing. Uh, he never wrote down anything. And so a lot of people took mm -hmm. his details and published later on. So uh, I tried to put a lot of publications, but obviously NASA won't let me do the theoretical work because of uh, secret and other things. So That's in, the, in the end, uh, we did use some NASA tools. Nastron came from uh, 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 mm -hmm. Cosmic Nastron, as you know. Uh, MSC Nastron was my expertise in Boeing, and then I brought it over to NASA. And uh, uh, and we didn't use CFD. CFD was a domain of uh, NASA Ames. So at Kennedy, we only worked on vibroacoustics. And uh, I can challenge you. We are. Uh, I'm one of, one of the only persons left in the world now who knows everything about rocket uh, noise and vibration, and how to solve these problems. You know, so. Really interesting. As you're an expert in the finite element method, and I have a ton of followers uh, like celebrating this method, could you give us a few examples on what the FAM could be, could be used in aerospace applications, uh, apart from vibroacoustics? Uh, well, you know, uh, as I said, you know, uh, vibroacoustics is a uh, uh, very, very uh, difficult phenomena to understand. Uh, even even when I was, uh, I want to impress upon you that, that uh, the first job I had well, I, we did study in seven, 1975 when I first went to IIT. I did use FEM, but obviously it was just very mundane things, uh, looking at some basic structures. But once I came to helicopters division in Boeing, we had a complex problem with uh, 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 planetary gearing. So you have a planetary, you know, when you have power going through all the shafts and couplings and stuff like that, going to uh, the rotor, rotor shafts, uh, you have what they call as planetary gear. Uh, and a ring gear mm -hmm. in the center, four planets around the, uh, 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 I mean, ring gear around the planets and the sun gear in the center and four planets running around in between the sun and the ring gear. So they are constrained at that point, uh, but the uh, the planetary gears have bearings. And so these bearings support the load of the ring gear on one side uh, and uh, the sun gear on the other side. This is one of the most complex problems I ever solved. and. Uh, my boss, who was Carl Albrecht, he kept on telling me that it's impossible to solve this problem on finite element analysis. So basically, we took that challenge and one of my predecessors, uh, who unfortunately did a lot of, lot of analysis with uh, finite element, but in the end, uh, he couldn't uh, solve this problem because the test data didn't match the uh, 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 finite element data. Because what we did was we took the root stresses by using the strain gauge. We applied for a 34 teeth gear, we would go to every single root of the gear, put the strain gauges and use that strain gauge data to convert stress and come up with a stress profile for the number of teeth, you know, like 34 or 33 or whatever that may be. That profile didn't match the finite element data because the boundary conditions were wrong. 
and it took me the first mm-hmm. six months to work on that particular problem uh, 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 to to solve it. And then in the end, uh, uh, I had I was working with a British engineer who had done a lot of uh, uh, helicopter work. And one day we came up with a boundary condition, and that really changed the whole uh, plan of. Uh, uh, you know results basically and that really solved the problem for me and uh, i got a lot of awards and kudos because of that so you know that is just one part of application but in vibroacoustics you know we did uh, use uh, uh, acoustic data and we have to predict the acoustic data on various structures unfortunately as you know on a rocket launch pad you can't put sensors everywhere basically because this uh, they will fly off you know you're getting mark 4 mark 3 exhausts and this will uh, you know make you fly away from orlando to california in one hour by the by so if you sit on the plume mm. and uh, we we couldn't predict all over the place and this is where the problem came because they kept on asking us can we put a camera up close to the solid rocket boosters and now how do i predict the stresses on those cameras to build the structure you know because one time a camera cover uh, uh, flew uh, because somebody had made a, uh, a problem with the uh, bolt bolt nut combination, and he made a groove bigger to fit the bolt, and that camera cover blew out because of the solid rocket booster exhaust hitting it, and it took out a ten foot section of a one foot thick wall, almost ten foot sections. It took off, literally broke it, and still it kept on flying for about five hundred meters. It is that kind of amount of energy we are talking about. And can you imagine just a simple foam hitting Columbia uh, and it created a pinhole which uh, damaged Columbia. Now hitting these big things were a problem. So same thing happened on STS-124. So again, I got a big award, but also I have a scar on my heart, uh, 18 scar, because I fought against the entire management for STS-125, which is the Hubble last repair mission. And on STS-124, we lost 3,500 bricks from the flame trench, which were going out at Mark 3, Mark 4 because of the solid rocket booster exhaust. And we had to come up with uh, not only stress analysis of the walls, but stress analysis of the whole structure, uh, as well as CFD analysis, which NASA Ames did, I didn't do it, and all these structures. So these are the kinds of uh, examples I can give you. Um, not only planar structures, curvilinear structures, uh, vibrating structures where you don't know, uh, you, you can't even predict the natural frequency of vibration because the structure is so complex. And these can be solved mm-hmm. by finite element. But just want to warn you that finite element is not the end of all means. You make a tiny mistake, six million parts in the space shuttle. You know, you can blow up the rocket in a hurry. I don't care what kind of genius you are in finite element or CFD. It, it, it requires intuition imagination and intelligence to solve these problems on the launch pad. And you can go to any school in the world, MIT, Harvard, uh, you name it, you know, best schools in the world will not teach you that, you know. It's only taught by getting your hands dirty. Uh, uh, and that's what I did, getting my hard hands dirty. Every time I worked like railroads, mining, helicopters, and space shuttle. I mean, even today you wake me up in the dream, I can tell you everything about the space shuttle. Uh, and the passion is there, you know, that's one thing lacking in today's kids. My wife says, if I cut Ravi in his hand, there's no blood coming out, only NASA comes out. And that is passion for you. That's funny. Very, very interesting anecdote, Ravi. Now, that's one of my questions, actually. Do you need to be a genius to join NASA would have been my question, but you halfway answered it already. So you don't need to be a genius, passion makes up for I it. think you don't have to be a genius. I failed many times. I, uh, the other day, I was in India trying to clean up my father's house and I got a, a scorecard in a mark sheet, you know, for SSLC exam, which is the 11th grade exam in Mumbai. And this was 1968. And I sent it to my daughter and my daughter says, Dad, is that 35 score or in a subject or it's 85? I said, Nina, that's 35. 35 is just the barely the crop <laughs> passing grade. And Nina was laughing. My daughter Nina said, wow, Dad, how, how did you end up in NASA? And now she knows after 40 years of work and 30 years, she knows why I'm so important in NASA. So anyway, uh, I failed in the exam in Mumbai. Uh, uh, I didn't get good scores and ended up in Bangalore. I failed uh, many times in uh, 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 Chicago. The first uh, semester in IIT Chicago, I want to understand the English language. 
you know what uh, the americans are speaking <laughs> you know but but i made it up and now i'm the global space ambassador and public speaker for nasa so uh, anyway uh, basically those are the failures are stepping stones i want people to fail it's like going through the maze and you make a left turn you can't go any further make a right and keep on doing the maze and you learn it so failure is a stepping stone for future successes so don't be afraid of failure failure was not an option on uh, uh, apollo 13 yes again people forget that apollo 13 had two parts one was plan a plan b plan a was to land on the moon and you know what happened right so we lost the engine and we had to come back that was a failure but then we got the men back so that was success so it's a successful failure it's not a uh, failure in itself so life goes through this successful failures i want you to you people to read vasa the ship it uh, sunk because of its heavy weight because of the guns in sweden just one mile away from the shore and then now they brought it up and now it's making more money than it ever was uh, shackleton sank antarctica expedition that's another successful failure for me those are the kinds of failures i went through not only uh, uh, railroads and boeing uh, uh, in helicopter division all these failures were stepping stones for me uh, yes i had a failure columbia and even today i cry for that you know uh, it was a stupid mistake and that's why i fought against uh, nasa management in 2009 for sts 125 there's a beautiful book written on that infinite worlds i want everybody to read it i wrote the last chapter in it and uh, i have a hate in scar because they wanted to fire me then because i was going against the entire nasa management to shut sts 125 one day delay in launch cost me 1 million dollars you know then what is the cost of blowing up a rocket you know more than 10 billion dollars or 100 billion dollars you know yeah we we were talking about education ravi which is very interesting to me so what do you think are the skills school is not teaching students nowadays that you think are very valuable in the in the professional world very good point you brought up uh, i want you to uh, think like a, a, a t shaped person or a i shaped person so mm-hmm. i shape uh, imagine you write the letter uh, capital i the vertical uh, line uh, in the middle is basically your core skills in my case it would be like a, i was a railroad engineer i did uh, uh, tribology as my subject core sciences uh people forget they they do lot of application but they don't understand the basic fundamentals of what is friction wear and lubrication what is vibroacoustics you know if you don't understand the fundamentals forget about everything so later on i studied mining uh, testing and uh, mining analysis uh helicopters uh, how they work basically and then uh, planes commercial planes and then finally coming to nasa I, I not only understood the space shuttle launches but i also uh, understood how payloads are designed how a uh, rocket goes to various parts uh, of the universe and how we can control the 6 million parts uh, not having like tacoma narrows bridge vibration <laughs> you know uh, way back in the seattle area uh, so that is the core skill uh, you want to have but the skills have to be supplemented or core core knowledge supplemented with with uh, uh, basic sciences you know like uh, tribology and uh, uh friction wear and lubrication and uh, vibration and things like that so understand that part not just understand what is vibroacoustics and dump everything in the final element and it is gives you garbage in garbage out you know the second mm-hmm. part the top part is uh, multidisciplinary so i have four mantras or actually i have 11 mantras for you i'll give you the four now uh in everything you do understand the root cause of analysis root cause has uh, two meanings one is called the proximate uh, cause of failure and second is the root cause what is proximate cause like in the case of uh, challenger it was a o-ring problem columbia it has a foam hitting the second part uh, is the root cause root cause was a human error why because nasa knew about the problem they didn't do anything so human error mm-hmm. always uh, is important second multidisciplinary knowledge like in my case it would be learning about railroads and mining and helicopters and commercial airplanes so you would say what the hell this uh, engineer from nasa is working on railroads did you could you imagine Ten years later, when I came to NASA, every single part of the rocket launch pad uh, on com- uh, pad A and pad B, which NASA had, runs on the railroad tracks. Even the solid rocket boosters we bring from Utah comes on the railroad tracks. I was an instant expert. I learned everything in mining about instrumentation. So basically, root cause analysis of everything you do, 
multidisciplinary knowledge in you know like in my case helicopters i learned about cfds and also about uh, finite element and when i came to nasa i learned about testing and vibroacoustics that was my multidisciplinary knowledge and then uh, the third part is the systems engineering you know people look at uh, just the trees when you walk on the street or the jungle you just look at the trees you want to look in the eyes of the condor fly with the eagles you know don't fly with crows and sparrows there are a lot of them we fly with the eagles to get a big picture six million parts how do they work together what happens if one part fails and that is the beauty about understanding systems or engineering of system last but least storytelling storytelling understanding what failures happen and stuff like that so you have the core skills then you have the multidisciplinary skills and last but not least which is the most important thing is the soft skills you know soft skills talk about uh, writing basic uh, speaking skills uh, i call it the max q talks where you stand up there and talk about 3 minutes about any subject you want and become the best in or how you present to people you know if you don't have the soft skills you may have the best idea in the world you may be a genius einstein but you will never go anywhere so this is i want you to be a i shaped person or a t shaped person or a manager basically and uh, think about possibilities you know we uh, in the old days when i was growing up in india one question one answer and teacher would beat me up for a second answer in nasa we look at possibilities where one question has many many possibilities one possibility may best suit the first question uh, but but the other possibilities will innovate you self innovation is more important you innovate yourself before you innovate others and uh, you know in the end it's all about uh, you trying to be a a uh, all rounder basically jack of all trades yes it works you know because a master of one is very hard to become definitely when we talk about um the hardest problem you have ever solved ravi could you tell us what that was and how did you approach it is it like the classical finite element uh, mantra which is divide and conquer or how did you do it uh, uh, what was the hardest problem for which area you see uh, the hardest problem that you solved during your career and how did you come up with a solution okay good call. good very good question i i think uh, the the hardest uh, uh, problem uh, was uh, for for us basically uh well there were two of them i would say you know i would i want to put uh, those two in perspective because it's all about flying you know uh, uh flying whether we are in a below one carbon line or above one carbon line um like the helicopter story i already told you basically mm-hmm. uh that was one of the uh, toughest problems in uh, uh you know uh, i worked on understanding the root stresses of the planetary gear system and there's a paper actually my boss uh, raymond drago he went in front of the entire agma american gear manufacturers association of 1000 people lecture he said i screwed up the last time and me and ravi now solve the problem again so this is kind of uh, you know a uh, unique uh, uh, radical passion and obsessive focus uh, we need to for the managers to to have saying that hey i was wrong so same thing when when i had my quadruple bypass uh uh i was i went against the entire nasa management to look at the uh uh the rocket uh, vibration so do, could do you imagine that with all the nasa knowledge and uh, engineers and the best minds in the business including jpl and you talk about million people around the world working for us uh we forgot that there is such thing as low frequency vibration coming from uh a 18 million pound crawler mobile launcher space shuttle transporter which takes the shuttle from the vehicle assembly building all the way to the launch pad it's about only a 3 mile journey at 0.8 miles per hour you are carrying 18 million pounds on the road and uh, it goes all the way to the pad and it has a 5 degree slope to go to the pad i mean it is one of the most complex problems and what happened was the there's back end of the shuttle if you look at there's three main engines there and there's a orbiter base shield base uh, heat shield what it happen what it does is when the engines lit up the liquid rocket engines with liquid hydrogen oxygen the plume hits uh, hits back and trying to hit the engines and the shuttle so to we put a orbiter orbiter base heat shield and that started cracking and this was about after 100 launches and people were confused mm-hmm. they had designed the rocket for more than several hundred launches each 
And now within 30, 40 launches, we started getting a big problem. And then we found out that the crawler transporter, which is a behemoth, is 6 million pounds, 3 million kilos. On top of it, there's a 9 million key, uh, pound uh, mobile launcher platform, which is kept on the launch pad. It takes the load against uh, uh, rocket exhaust of 6.5 million pounds or 3 million kilos. This 9 million pound paperweight or 4.5 million kilos adds to the 3 million, 7.5 million already. Now we have another 1.5 million coming from the shuttle. All this weight, you know, you would think that there is no vibration coming from a small, um, a big bearing inside the crawler, which is connected to the ground. And the ground, what it does is we have river rocks from Arkansas River and uh, Tennessee River. So we put that rocks and we have 456 shoes on the crawler. And each shoe, I call it the Cinderella shoe, uh, each weighs about one ton. There are 456 of them. And they're, uh, uh, you know, they're using their friction, wear and lubrication from that uh, rocks. There is no lubricant there, just uh, basically rubbing against the rocks. And the bearings are working hard. Uh, there's uh, gears. All these are providing 0.01 hertz frequency. And they're going all the way into the rocket. Can you imagine that? Nobody had realized that, that, that 0 0.1, 0 0.01, 0 uh, you know, 0.05 hertz frequency would go through all these uh, rocket parts. And uh, it took us almost a year to shut the shuttle off, study this problem. And finally, we used a lot of finite element analysis, stress analysis, uh, putting only two solid rocket boosters, putting only uh, mobile launcher to uh, putting on top of it. And finally, we realized that this is going through the whole structure. And then we had to do the, there was no whole model of finite element analysis of the whole rocket. They were part uh, of the rocket itself, mobile launcher part was separate, the crawler was separate, there was no connectivity between those parts. It would be a humongous, humongous project. But we did it. Uh, in 2009, I got the chance, well, no, not 2009, a little bit before that, uh, I, I, I got a chance to present that paper uh, in one of the conferences and we had some Canadian partners who helped us also. So finally, we solved that problem. I think that would be one of the trickiest problems I faced, uh, never, never realizing, yes, when you have big vibration, you have big problems, but not this tiny zero one hertz, you know, going through the stack, mm -hmm. which is 9 million kilos or uh, uh, 18 million pounds. And the second, uh, uh, the last one, I think I mentioned to you, when 3,500 bricks, you can Google STS-124 problem, uh, mission STS-124 problem, 3,000 bricks started flying. Even NASA AMs were mm -hmm. confused and they were telling me that the plume doesn't come around and hit the rocket. So this uh, bricks, you know, which are weighing about 10, 20, 30 pounds, they won't fly. And these bricks were very similar to Italian architecture when you go to Domo and some of the uh, uh, Brunelleschi's dome, how it was constructed. The launch pad is constructed like that because we have a concrete barrier. And on top of that, we have bricks which can sustain 3000 degrees temperature, but they are interlocking bricks. And these were the bricks which flew off. Since the Apollo days, 1969, uh, we never had this problem. In 2009, we had that in 2008, actually, uh, when STS-124 happened. I shut the whole launch pad, and NASA wanted to fire me because I was delaying the rocket. And then finally, my management came and supported me. And uh, later on, uh, uh, we did the finite element analysis, and we presented that uh, uh, lecture in... Uh, in um, uh, Poland, I presented a lecture, and that was, I, I think, one of the finest papers I presented, because that's one thing was was very very tricky problem. The last but not least, uh, there was one problem uh, about the, you know, if you remember ISS, it has this uh, 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 universal uh, connectors, you know, basically, uh, and this universal connectors is docking adapters. Uh, uh, it's called IDA, International Docking Adapter. So if you have a different type of rocket by Elon Musk or by uh, uh, you know some other company, Japanese company, they will all go and mate. So it's a universal adapter, imagine, for the space International Space Station. The problem was the Russians made it because they were genius in International Space Station activity before NASA. But the problem was that once the uh, uh, structure came to uh, America, 
Boeing got the contract to refurbish it and they put a lot of hardware and uh, added mass and added all kinds of structural modifications and stuff like that. Guess what? It changed the natural frequency of vibration. So I kept on fighting with the NASA management and said, guys, I don't want, as a GSRP, I was the, it was my highest job in NASA as a foreigner, basically foreign born person. Uh, ground safety review panel, which is the highest job one can get. I was a co-chair of that. So that means every single payload anywhere in the world went through me. Uh, uh, so it may be alpha magnetic spectrometer, $5 billion, or a Japanese mice worth $500. Anyway, long story short, uh, when NASA overruled me, uh, Houston overruled me because they were flight safety, I was ground safety. Then I said, okay, I'm not going to sign on the papers. You can launch this, and if it, something goes wrong, and uh, it starts vibrating in space. You can't dock with a rocket. You may vibrate the whole space station. And space station cost, today's cost is $250 billion. And I was instrumental in building each of the parts since uh, Unity Node 1 and Zarya in 1998. And uh, NASA overruled me. And I was so mad. Guess what? Maybe my prayers were okay because what happened was it went on SPX uh, SpaceX 7 rocket. And as you know, what happened to SPX SpaceX uh, 7 rocket? It lifted off the launch pad in Cape Canaveral and blew up within a matter of few minutes. So luckily, after I saw, uh, told them the problem second time, they fixed it. I see. Very interesting. My, so many insights, Harvey. Thank you so much. And although you said like you should get your hands dirty yourself, um, it would be really, really cool if you could link me to a few papers or books that people can read if they're interested in problem solving vibroacoustics and things like that so i can put it in the description of the podcast it would be really sure really cool. sure well as i said I, earlier i don't know whether people heard me or not i've been meaning to write my memoir you know my journey from india to nasa uh, one of uh, the presidents of india abdul kalam dr abdul kalam he was a president of india as well as a rocket man and a missile man when he came to nasa i was his tour guide and he was telling me uh, Dr. Avi, I told him, I said, I'm just a humble man. I'm an ordinary person in your presence. You know, he said, no, no, no. You're you're also extraordinary because when I was moving the rocket in India for Indian Space Agency, I was moving, moving it on a bullock cart or a, uh, or a bicycle. So I was just like a ground person like you. But one thing you did, which I, I can never do it, is that you launched uh, 700 people to space on 100 space shuttles. And Kalpana Chawla, the first Indian woman we got to, uh, launch uh, her in space and also you're the first indian person to work on the uh, indian born person to work on nasa launch pads so you're truly an astronaut maker of nasa so i'm writing a book uh, that would be more a general book uh, about my journey but the second book will be about problem solving on many many fundamental basic sciences which is very critical uh, because education doesn't provide you with all these skills uh, nothing provides you mm -hmm. you know no mit no iit uh, in the world can provide you or Cambridge or whatever. I've given lectures into all these institutions and people are dumbfounded when I start complaining about these things. Not, I wouldn't say complaining, showing them the shortcomings, you know, uh, about all the people. So that I call, you know, it's, uh, uh, is the audacity of a human being to, to tell the truth and truth hurts, but truth prevails. Definitely. When you look back, Ravi, start, starting with your career, like more than 30 years back or 28 years plus, where do you see the skills of engineers have been and how will the skills of engineers have to change in the future, especially with the uprise of artificial intelligence? Where do you see engineers have to become stronger at? I think uh, 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 this is my opinion. Again, uh, yes, people may not agree with me and people will have different opinions and uh, they may differ from uh, what I'm saying. But I think uh, 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 if you, I, I want all of you to read a book by Henry Petrosky. He's my sort of guru. He's a professor from Duke University. I read, uh, there's a lot of technical papers by him on the web, uh, Google, you know, YouTube or, or even Google. Uh, but there's a book called uh, uh, Success or Failure, a Paradox of uh, uh, Paradox of Innovation or something like that. Uh, that is very, very uh, good book. In, the, in that book, he talks about uh, forgetting curve. So every 30 years, we go through this cycle in human uh, journey or human history. Um, you know, and uh, I've come through two cycles, luckily. Uh, if you imagine mm -hmm. uh, mankind started from Africa a million years ago, Homo sapiens 60,000 years ago, uh, then we started going around the world. 60,000 years, we just wandered around 10,000 miles of the earth, you know. We never went anywhere. 
But now in the last 60 years, you know, in my first year, I've launched probes to uh, Ulysses to the sun, Magellan uh, to Venus and Galileo to Jupiter and uh, uh, Cassini to, to Saturn, things like that. Launched the Hubble in my first year. We built the ISS, uh, we repaired the Hubble five times. Uh, you know, what I'm trying to impress upon is, I think uh, you cannot just work in software. AI and AR and VR, they are tools basically. You know, when I was growing up in India, uh, my father couldn't even afford a slide rule, you know. I used to use log tables. There were no computers then. I, I didn't know a word computer those days. Uh, even when I came to America, I, I saw, you know, a com computer in IIT far, far away. I didn't even touch a computer, feel, feel a computer, you know. Uh, but mm -hmm. what, what it is, is, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, the, uh, the, the human uh, uh, mind works when you see a picture, you know, you identify with the picture. Same way, you know, you, you have to identify the root cause of uh, failure in everything you do, and that enforces you. That's why uh, Petrovsky says that the success through failure is the only way to your great success, you know. Uh, you know, I've, I've failed many times, you know, I have literally, you know, uh, I've been miserable almost, you know, up to a point where, you know, I was down all the time. So, uh, what one must do is not rely too much on software. Yes, software is a great tool. Computer is a great tool. But if you don't understand the physics of the problem, that is where you mm -hmm. go wrong. As engineers, you know, uh, there was a nice, uh, if I get a, my hands on one of the articles uh, written by two people who are talked, uh, talked about safety, engineering safety. Remember, we talked about engineering safety. You know, um, I was a launchpad safety manager and all that. And for me, knowing every little detail on how this rocket performs, what can go wrong, how to understand each of those parts and how they fit together and what uh, happens at the exhaust of the rocket, how it affects the payload, all that things people forget, you know. Nowadays engineers just, okay, you know, design this part and they just go and, go and design the part without understanding how it connects to the other entities. So I think my biggest challenge for the engineers today is understand the physics of the problem. And this person who is a genius in uh, safety, he, has, he worked for NASA 40 years, uh, including my, my best friend, uh, uh, Bill William MacArthur the th uh, second. He was the chief of safety for entire ISS and the entire shuttle program. And my mentor has been Pamela Melroy. She's uh, now number two, deputy administrator of entire NASA, reports directly to Joe Biden. She was my mentor in 1996. She gave me my Silver Snoopy Award for solving a problem on the space shuttle. So now, what happened on the space shuttle? So basically, as the shuttle was coming down, suddenly the uh, crew compartment became very, very hot. There was no coolant uh, loop working properly. There was a water coolant loop which was going through a very quarter-inch diameter pipe. It stopped working because we were going around the world every 45 minutes, you know, we, I go around the world 90 minutes and um, uh, st start from Orlando, come back to Orlando 90 minutes. I see 16 sunsets and sunrise. So there is 130 degree variation, temperature variation from one side of the earth to the other side. And the water uh, froze. Once the water froze in a small area of the pipe, which is a long pipe, and it is exposed to the payload compartment, guess what happened? There's no water coming. And these guys were very hot. And Basically, to understand the water flow rate, I don't remember now. There's an article written by me, a technical memorandum for NASA. It was very, very low flow rate, and it was impossible to even measure the flow rate. And there was only one two-line calculation by NASA Ames uh, to tell you what the flow rate was, but never calculated. <laughs> until, mm -hmm. until that particular time in 1995, and guess what? We, we took ultrasonic flow meters, and we connected these flow meters on big pipes uh, underneath the crew compartment where below the uh, where the pilot and co-pilot sit. And we did everything to uh, validate the data. We validated the data at a high flow rate, but not in flow, uh, flow rate. Then we had to take the sensors and send it to the factory in uh, uh, Boston to recalibrate them to measure very, very, very flow, low flow rates. And then only I could measure the flow rates. And basically, for that work uh, on the space shuttle, I got the highest award in NASA called the Silver Snoopy Award. The Snoopy dog, which is a Disney dog, is a pin made out of it. It goes to space, and Pamela Melroy, uh, astronaut, she brings it from Houston and gives you that award. That means you are branded the best 
basically. And that's what I call gold standard. You know, I want everybody who is a listener, I want to have that uh, 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 insatiable appetite for learning unique problem-solving skills, think differently in all different uh, dimensions, uh, radical passion, uh, extreme audacity, pitbull tenacity, and make sure that you are the best in the world. In the end, Joseph, you know, your name is the only one you brought to this world and you're not going to take only your name uh, after you're gone. Nothing belongs to you in this world. So your name has to be gold standard. And that's help people understand the physics of the problem. If you don't understand all this software, all this uh, uh, hardware, computers, and uh, best software in the world, FEM, uh, CFDs, uh, AI, you name it, uh, deep learning, uh, whatever you call it, nothing matters because it doesn't go beyond the physics of the problem. You cannot change it. God has written down those rules. Mm, I see. What would you say, Ravid, during your career was the biggest technological breakthrough that was very fascinating to you? What would you say was the biggest one? Was it reusable rocket or would you say something else that you encountered during your career? I, I think <laughs> there are many of them, but uh, <clears throat> uh, two things. Uh, well, um, I would say the next uh, leap forward for NASA is the the uh, a laser com laser communication and uh, i put a payload called opals you can google it o-p-a-l-s it's a laser communication between earth and space and uh, this is the finest piece of hardware you know uh, we are going to put if you want to travel in deep space and go deep space communications the only way uh, to do that is to have release of many many lasers uh, satellites which will communicate with each other and there was a a station uh, in California, and uh, as the ISS was going around, we put the opals on on the external part of the ISS after launching it in the space shuttle, and there would be beams communicating back and forth. And then, there were, as we came over California on the space station, uh, I, I would uh, get that uh, data basically, and that is the future, I would say, uh, uh, of what we are going to be doing. And I think uh, that is one of the finest uh, uh, pieces of. Uh, 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 technology, you know, uh, reusable rockets, uh, Joseph, I'm sorry to say this for you, but I used to do that with, with, uh, uh, lunar modules landing on the moon and coming back on the space shuttle, 135 mm-hmm. launches. I put men in those rockets, you know, in the space shuttle. Okay. And launched them to space above, above one carbon line to low earth orbit. And they stayed there one month, two months, and then still I brought them back, landing safely where I started from Kennedy Space Center. We have the largest, longest runway in the world. Actually, cutely, we call it the alligator tanning facility because all the alligators come and tan on it and we have to kick them out. <laughs> so I think uh, we have done the done the reusable part of the rocket. Big rockets, I'm not impressed with big rockets because there's a bigger thrust. So if something goes wrong, you'll blow up one engine you can't have 33 engines like the Russians did on the N1 rocket and other things. You know what happened? One bolt uh, came out of one of the rockets and got sucked up in the other engine. That's why Russians never went to the moon, as you know. Uh, so basically, uh, the technology is already done. The next one, I would say, is uh, in my own career and own my lifetime. I was thinking about flying in 1964, as you know. In 1960. Uh, uh, 70, uh, I mean, not 70, 81, 82, I started working for Boeing and I was building helicopters for a living uh, in Philadelphia, Chinooks and the tandem rotor, V-22, the tilt rotor, the Model 360, all composite and the Comanche helicopter, all this helicopter. Now, seeing NASA JPL, which is my own agency, you know, flying on Mars, can you imagine Ingenuity helicopter? So... I want to impress upon you that, you know, for me, more than Apollo 11, I would say Apollo 13 was a classic example of what human mind can do. These three men were stuck beyond the physical reach of humankind, 200,000 miles away from Earth. If you fall in a pool, Joseph, I can hold my hand and pull you out. But these three men were beyond the physical reach of humankind, but not beyond the reach of human intelligence, imagination, and ingenuity. And with those words, Gene Kranz, and his whole team of people on Earth, and three men in space, two teams, fantastic NASA teams, uh, brought them back. Why NASA is great? Because you're talking about 
digital twins and all that. NASA did that in 1968-69 when we were working on the Apollo. Uh, if you Google that, you know, you can find out about Apollo uh, uh, digital twins. Apollo 13, we used digital twins. Um, so basically, what I'm trying to impress upon you is that these are the kinds of technologies you want to do. You want to lead. My uh, Voyager 1, Voyager 2 has gone beyond the solar system. Nobody will catch up with me. I met the guy who launched Voyager 1, Voyager 2, you know, uh, and it's amazing that kind of people I met uh, uh, doing the tours and stuff like that. I want people, your people to uh, go around the world, you know, you appreciate the world more. You find, uh, you find uh, 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 like, like uh, Henry Petrosky says, uh, innovation starts with uh, you first, but also you have to look, at, look around you, what is missing in this particular thing? Uh, uh, one particular person, American, uh, forget his name now, he went around the third world country, he saw people lifting his suitcases and then putting it on a horse cart and moving it to his uh, hotel. He said, how come if, if I can combine the suitcase with the wheels, I would become a billionaire. And that's what happened. He became a billionaire. So innovation is to look at everything in this world because everything in this world is engineered world. Like Juan Carmen from JPL said, scientists study the world. And we don't want all the scientists in the world because they'll never engineer a thing. Our world is an engineered world. You know, that's why engineering is such a great profession. Science, I'm not putting down science and math. That is, a, those are quintessential to understand in, engineering. Uh, and technology derives from engineering. So engineering is the central part. S science and math on the other side. So scientists create the world as is. Engineers, I mean, uh, study the world as is. Engineers create the world that never was. So it is important as a science uh, engineer to understand everything wrong with this. So innovation is just understanding the limitation of the current state of the art. You know, if you had just a pencil without an eraser, you put an eraser in the back, something like that. You know, so this is how innovation starts. And innovation, you can become a billionaire just by creating one tiny thing. You know. Very beautiful. And that makes me very proud to be an engineer, Ravi. Before I ask the last question to wrap up the podcast, I have one question for you. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask that in a second. But before I do that, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time being on my show. And I'm sure there will be a second part in the future, especially when you've written your books, as you've mentioned in the beginning. So the question uh, to wrap this up is, how do you define success, Ravi? How do I define success? Very, very good question. My God, you put me on the spot. <laughs> Am I successful today? Uh, I don't know yet, you know. Uh, success for Tenzing Norgay. I met him, I was 20 years old. I was wandering the streets of Darjeeling. I uh, went to a store and asked the guy, I said, give me some postcards of uh, Darjeeling and uh, Tenzing Norgay and uh, uh, Hillary climbing Mount Everest in 1970, uh, 19, you know, this was 1973, I asked the question. But uh, as, as you know, uh, the keeper didn't have any pictures. Tenzing Norgay didn't know how to take a picture. And Hillary had the camera, so there's only a picture of Tenzing on the Everest. So, is, is Everest climbing Mount Everest on uh, on 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 this Earth, the tallest peak in the world in in this uh, Earth, uh, is success? I don't think so. You know why? Because it comes from horse's mouth. I uh, asked the manager. I said, "Give me a postcard," and he said, "No, I don't have any postcard." He said, "But the guy sitting in the corner, you know." I said, "You know who that is?" I said, "No, everybody looks the same. All the Sherpas look the same." He said, that's Tenzing. I said, you got to be kidding me. Then I grabbed him, brought him outside. We had a nice chat with him, about 10 students from RV College of Engineering in Bangalore. And he said, Ravi, think, you know, that you can't wander around the streets of Darjeeling and one day become successful in climbing Mount Everest. There's a lot of, you know, you have to come to the base camp, but before that, there's a lot of training and other things. There's four base camps you have to, uh, another camps you have to go up. And finally, you reach the top. But you are born in 53. Don't even think about Mount Everest. Mount Everest has been done. It has been submitted. I did that when you were born. So you find your own peak. And I'm saying, Mr. Tenzing, what the hell are you are talking about? You know, you got to be nuts, you know. I mean, what is there to climb on the earth? So success means different things for different people. So when I started thinking about flying, maybe I thought I'll come up with the best plane in the world. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe I thought I'll be at least a helicopter pilot or a plane pilot. It didn't happen. I said I'll be an aerospace engineer. It did happen. 
I said, I'll work on mm. aerospace field. It, it did happen. And then, God forbid, you know, nothing happened to me with all this uh, craziness in NASA when you work right under the shuttle with uh, toxic gases and all that. So I came to NASA. First day, you know, first uh, months launching probes to, um, first year launching probes to the sun, uh, to, to Venus and Jupiter and, uh, you know, launching Hubble. I mean, is that success? I don't think so. Then we said we'll make mankind live and work on, on well, launching the first Indian woman. Is that success? I don't think so. Then we said uh, first person to work on the NASA launch pads. Again, it's not good enough. So we'll build the hub, uh, International Space Station, $200 billion module by module. Is that success? I, I don't think so. I think success for me is to give back to the world. Like Pamela Melroy, my mentor said, you know, your name has to be gold standard in the world. For that, you have to create masters and geniuses. A master is one who is not measured by the number of students he has, but by the number of masters he creates. So my goal in life is nice. to give back to the world and give back to the my country. Uh, again, I don't believe in America. I don't believe in India. We are all one, basically. We are humankind. And if I help uh, Joseph from one country or somebody else from another country it doesn't mean a thing for me you are a human first i have to respect you as a human first i don't even care for religions i i'm i believe in religions i believe in god but i don't believe in all these barriers even our astronauts in space they said ravi as before i say kazakhstan i would be in a different continent in space because i'm going at mark 25 in on the iss so we don't see any boundaries on earth so why should be there boundaries in the human mind and that's my message to all of you. So but one most important thing, if you want to be successful, one trait, if you forget everything I said today, it comes from uh, Pamela Melroy and all the astronauts I launched. Self-esteem is the most important thing. Second, have no fear. Fear has two meanings. Forget everything and run uphill or face everything and rise. Uh, take a lot of risks. By taking risks, you may lose. But if you don't take risks, you'll always be a loser. So hit on self-esteem and you'll be automatically a successful person. Love it. That was such a great podcast, Ravi. I really enjoyed being on the show with you. And hopefully there will be a second, but I'm sure the audience wants it. Thank you again so much for being on the show. And with that, we're closing the session and see you Thank online. you again. Thank you, Joseph. You, you put my brain to work today, man. Thank you. <laughs>